0: Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You're about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm your host, Rob Stinnett, and here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up, man? What's
1: up? Um, It is Christmas time, and this is the first time since the inception of this podcast where we are going to not talk about Die Hard during Christmas time that's true <laughs>
0: that's kind of our normal <laughs> tradition so i guess that's my opening question is is it's a wonderful life a christmas movie
1: uh yeah it is it's a wonderful life is a christmas movie and contrary to my uh christmas movie rules um i think it only checks one of the boxes really well, that, well yeah, uh, give people yeah. context again oh if sorry they, if they yeah. didn't give that so what yeah, are your so four boxes he- yeah, so if you're, if you're new to this podcast and haven't listened to our first episode ever, which is about Die Hard. So uh, we had a nice, lovely argument. You can go back and, and l- listen to it about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. And so we uh, I came up with rules for what constitutes a Christmas movie. Um, and so there's four rules. Uh, the first one is um, the characters have to rediscover like a childlike wonder. Uh, like uh, the Polar Express. It's great uh, version of that movie. Uh, number two, uh, the rule is is the main characters have to sort of rediscover or reorient their lives around like family and friendship and relationships and reprioritize right. that over like um, their own personal vocation or like uh, oftentimes it's like money or job or striving for your own goals. You have to prioritize relationships first. Uh, number three, who's number three? Oh, a Christmas has to function as like a meaningful deadline to whatever's happening in the movie. So like any kind of like I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, sort of uh, thing uh, home alone does this right like they've got to solve whatever the thing is because home alone is just a movie about trying to like punk the people who are trying to rob your house but because there's the whole christmas deadline of trying to get back together it makes it more christmasy yeah. uh, and then the fourth one is like if it's about santa or elves or reindeers or snowmen then it's just an automatic pass and it's a christmas movie <laughs> so there's and- <laughs> there's the, there's the four rules uh, and I think how many boxes life. most of the
0: time should be checked for it to be a Christmas movie.
1: I said it has to check two, uh, in order for it to be a Christmas movie was, was my sort of arbitrary rule set, but it felt good to say like of those
0: four rules, if it checks two of the boxes, it's like a Christmas movie. Yeah. I think if you go back to the diehard episode, I even pushed back and said, is it's a wonderful life, a Christmas movie uh-huh. by those rules. And, right. um, you do, you do say that. <laughs> doing the research something really interesting which is Frank Capra did not think of it's a wonderful life as a christmas movie when he was pursuing it and creating it although the movie is based off a christmas card like like i did all this research of like how it was there and most movies when they're created are either like an original screenplay or they're based off some sort of ip right like it's like hey this is a novel series or this is a comic book or Whatever else like that. Of all the movies I've ever researched, It's a Wonderful Life is the only one that I've ever seen that was based off of a Christmas card that some guy created. It was like a five-page paneled Christmas card that RKO liked so much that they bought it and optioned to make a movie out of it.
1: What? Isn't that crazy? I feel like we could do an entire podcast just on that fact. I have not heard that, and that is bananas. It's based off of a Christmas card.
0: Yeah, Philip Van Doren uh, Uh gave 200 copies of this story, The Greatest Gift, to publish. Yes,
1: I knew it was based on The Greatest Gift. I thought it was a short story. I didn't realize it was a Christmas
0: card. Yeah, so he sent them out as a 21-page Christmas card. And he sent them out to all these different people. And David Hampstead, producer at RKO Pictures, ended up getting a hold of it and purchased the movie rights for $10,000, which in the 30s... (laughs) was a boatload of money. I don't have my inflation calculator here, but I would imagine that's five to ten times the amount, <laughs> you know, back then, which is, you know, pretty unheard of for a Christmas card to be there. So, yeah, anyway, but my point was Capra was like, no, I just liked the story. I didn't even think of it. But <laughs> bottom line, yes, this is very much a Christmas movie. We are recording it around Christmas time. And um it's, it's a classic movie, and every year there's certain movies that my kids. My family love to watch. We watch Elf. We watch Home Alone. I watch Die Hard. You know, there's all sorts of different ones. But It's a Wonderful Life is always a tough sell for me because it's not quite a modern movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious from you, like, just kind of big picture zooming out. Most yeah. things we cover are like contemporary. Yeah. When do you think movies became modern? What's like this? I know this is really, really subjective. Yeah. But if you had to pick, you're part of the movie. You know. Hall of Fame, and you're like, this is the line of demarcation of when movies became modern and when they were ancient, (laughs) older. What would you say? So,
1: I think I'm I'm gonna go with the easy answer, and I'm gonna say Jaws. Uh, I'm gonna say with the inception of the Hollywood blockbuster, which was Jaws in the summer of oh, I'm gonna lose my 1975. 75. I was like, I know it's. I was gonna say 72. I knew it was sometime in the 70s. 1975. So, with the inception of the summer blockbuster, in which I think, like, the thrill or the fun of the movie started to take precedent over the, like, um, like, the richness of the story and the characters, right? When it, when, um... That that sort of created um, a different element of movies that we're very much used to now that even our great movies have some version of like an excitement and thrill to them. Um, They're more entertainment than just a wonderful story. Um, And so I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to say uh, that kind of started to some degree. And it's I mean, there's a bunch of arguments against this, but let's say 1975.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I didn't even think about that as the answer, but that's probably what I would say. I think. I think really the 80s or probably mid 80s, just like as a dad showing them to my kid. If it's something's mid 80s, mm-hmm. it kind of plays. If it's earlier than that, it de- like Goonies still works for my kids, you know, like yeah. where if I show them the Apple Dumpling Gang, another movie made for kids, really fun. That's a movie in the 70s. Ah, it doesn't it doesn't quite play. It feels dated. It gets there, it, like, lost in translation there. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great movie with great characters, but doesn't work as well. Uh, one thing that's really interesting is, you know, for a while, movies were the only way to see motion pictures, you know, stories on film. And in the 50s and 60s, TV really came along and a lot of movie producers were scared of, like, our movies going to go away? Like, is TV just, mm. like, it's free, it's in your home, that sort of thing, or are we going to lose to movies? And really, even with streaming today, it's like that same sort of battle in a different way is what we're fighting. So movies like Jaws, part of the reason that theater experience became so important was they asked themselves, what is something that can be created in the theater that cannot be created at home? Mm.
1: Yeah, which is sort of the question that we're back on today in the movie industry is like what will bring people to the movie theaters? And and so the blockbuster model is becoming even more sort of inflated, right, where it you, you have like these insane tentpole movies where, you know, we're, we're talking like four hundred million dollar budgets. A lot of those are superhero movies or, you know, giant uh, crowd crowd pleasers. Um, you get some fun, artistic, giant crowd pleasers like a Dune or something like that, that um, has that cinema experience. But yeah, uh it's it's it is interesting how that is sort of cycling back around how streaming is sort of the new TV devil uh that's pushing against against the movie machine.
0: So going back to this question one more time, I think another definition of it would be movies feel modern, um, stop feeling modern about 10 years after you're born. And so it's very subjective. But like when you're born about 10 years later, all of a sudden it's like, "Mm, that feels a little date. I can go five years, something else like that. But All of them bring up movies to you, and you'll be like, "Ah, that feels distant to me because of when I was born." And I think that ten-year mark is pretty, pretty universal of like what it is. So, so you're saying ten years after you're born is when things start
1: feeling dated? Yeah. So ten or sorry, ten years before you were born. Ten years before you were born. Okay. Yeah. So for me, that would be seventy-seven. So I picked seventy-five. So right. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty close. Um, that's it's yeah, it's really, really interesting. So here's the other thing that I think about this movie when it comes to like recommending it, it's like a Christmas movie and what makes this movie a hard sell one. It's a little bit longer. It's two hours, 10 minutes, um, which we talked about in last week's episode of killers of the flower moon of how older movies generally had longer runtimes. Um, so there is a little bit of, of that in it. But the other thing that um, I, I I didn't see this movie really at all when I was a kid, I think it was a hard sell for my parents. To us, I don't think they ever really pushed it, because uh, other Christmas movies were more interesting. Rudolph was about a cute little deer and shorter, and movies like White Christmas that are also old have song and dance numbers and are more fun. Um, so I don't know that I, I don't know that I saw this movie until adulthood. I know I've seen it a couple times, but definitely not as a kid. Um, what's your kind of relationship with this movie?
0: Yeah, I this was the movie that was always in the background of other movies. Like this movie is on, they're watching it while Gremlins is going on. It's kind of black yeah. and white in TV. It's the movie that I kind of <laughs> knew of, even when I was a kid growing up, like it would always be on TV. And so I'd turn it on and watch five minutes. And I thought it was so boring. I thought yep. this movie is so kind of boring and lame. I know you're supposed to like it. It's like a movie that my dad or my grand I don't even think my dad liked it that much. Probably my grandpa or grandma did. Yep. But like, that's it. It's like an old fashioned movie that I thought was just kind of like. Christmas noise and sentimental and did not think much about. Yeah. I think
1: that's sort of what my opinion of it was growing up, but that was probably put into me before I ever heard it, right? Of like, what is this movie? Why don't we ever watch it? And people are like, ah, it's kind of boring. It's kind of slow, it's kind of long. Um, I think that might be a little bit of the noise surrounding this movie. But I'm gonna my my not so hot take, but just opinion of maybe why this movie is underseen is that similar to my Christmas rules about rediscovering childlike wonder. Um, or like snowmen and Santa Claus and elves. Um, a lot of Christmas movies have like a child audience is a part of the demographic of the story. Oh. There is a little bit of the Disney vibe, right? We, we, we talked about this. when We were talking about inside out a couple weeks ago, which is like animated movies are often aimed at kids as a primary audience. And so. If you want to have like a grown up animated movie like Inside Out, you have to marry this sort of like childlike fun with a more adult message. I think some of the great Christmas movies kind of do. Um, it's a Wonderful Life is not for kids at all. Not because it's like grown up in the sense of like, you know, like there's it's like a Scorsese movie. No one's getting shot in the face. But like it's not interesting unless you're an adult and have to deal with money. Yeah, unless you are paying bills, unless you have a utility bill, it's a wonderful life is not emotional or like like the plot of the movie does not resonate. And so as a 10 year old, the like run on the bank and keeping the building and loan open and these people should own homes versus renting homes like all these things that actually really resonates with me now in my 30s. Like I'm connected to these decisions, whereas a kid like it is super boring because you're like, I don't care. Like, I don't even understand. Like, okay, Mr. Potter wants to buy your shares for 50 cents on the dollar. I literally
0: don't know what that means. Right. (laughs) I still don't really know what that means, by the way. But (laughs) I I think, dude, that is spot on. Like, I've never thought of it quite like that, which is Christmas movies are all aimed for kids or they're like kind of like they're snuggle with a blanket and hot cocoa. It's like Hallmark channely kind of aimed at moms and women's, but like there are very few movies that are just like, okay, this is aimed. I mean, it really is like a middle-aged movie. And it's like, if you're in your thirties, forties, fifties, this is the story. Yeah. And what makes it so powerful is it's the story of like, I thought my life was going to turn out one way. Mm -hmm. And then it, you know, turned out something totally different. You have Scrooge, which is like, Hey, he's evil and powerful and doesn't realize like what he could be. But George Bailey actually wants to be a good guy, but more than anything, he wants to do good things. And that is just totally ripped away from him, every fiber of his being, and he's left with nothing else, which, yeah, when I finally, I don't know when I first really sat down and watched it, but I was probably in my 20s, and I was like, oh, this is a good film. Yeah. And now when I watch it, I'm like, this is one of the most important films that anyone could watch or think about and talk about. Because it is really about life's disappointments. Like yeah. what happens when life didn't turn out the way that you think it was supposed to? And you're like, screw it. There's nothing worth living for. That's really what this movie is about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. I, I think it's so interesting that like I think in the last 10 years, a lot has been made about like the first eight minutes of the animated film up. Right. People talk about like how good the first eight right. minutes of up is uh, as like a prologue to the rest of the film with balloons and an old man and a weird bird. Um, but like that first eight minute prologue is it's a wonderful life done with animation and a pretty soundtrack. Yeah. Like that's the and, and So sitting here and like watching this story and watching someone like strive for a goal, which is adventure. Right. It's literally the exact same goal that um, Ellie and whatever the main characters name in up want. Um, Carl Asner, Carl. There it is. Yeah, Carl. It's the exact same thing Carl and Ellie want. They want to go on an adventure. They want to see the world. That's what George Bailey wants. He wants to go on an adventure, see the world. And then he wants to do something important, which man, that resonated with me a lot. He wants to do something important. And to him, doing something important is. Building big buildings and building big bridges, right? Like I want to do something that people will notice.
0: Well, and um, he kind of looks down at people who are not who are going to waste their life. And yeah. this was me once upon a time where I was just like, oh, you're going to do like ordinary things. I tell stories like I create art. I do something important. And he kind of looks down his nose even early on when Mary comes into the like soda shop or whatever else. He's like, she's like, I don't want coconut. And he's like, you don't like coconut. What's wrong with your brainless? Like there's this great kind of back and forth. And he's just like. His dad wants him to stay and like stay back at the place. And he's just like, dad, that's fine for you, but it's beneath me. And ordinary life is beneath him. And then he can't even do an ordinary life well, which makes him feel like such a failure. And I resonate with that as much as any protagonist in any movie ever made, which is I know what it feels like to feel like, no, I'm meant for something special, but then I didn't get to do something special. Now I do something ordinary. And then even ordinary things I've messed up. And now I have nothing left. And what does that mean? Like that hits me to my core in such a powerful way. Yeah. And and it's like I sort of said, like, I think that that is just simply a story
1: that doesn't resonate with you as a child. Like you haven't had the mediocre disappointments of life, right? Like the 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 crises of this movie are all wrapped around either mundane things or things that like he should be excited about. I, I, I guess like when you're watching this movie as a kid and he wants to go to college and go out and like do these things. But then like he meets the girl, you're like, oh, yeah, you should be with the girl. Don't go do your dreams. Go hang out with the girl because this is a movie and you should get married and fall in love. And that's the goal like when you're older and you realize that is a part of life, but not all of life. Suddenly that moment where you see he is sacrificing something huge in his life in order to do something that is more meaningful to him, but it comes at a huge sacrifice. Like you just do not feel that. Yep. Um, I think as a younger person.
0: <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> and there's a scene at the building and loan where he's like about to lose everything. And he's like, okay, how much do you need right now? And he's oh having gosh. to negotiate with everyone. And it's just like, if you've never had to deal with clients or have ever had to deal with something where it's like, OK, I've a lot of, got a lot of upset people about me and my whole business is about to collapse, so like that's a really adult thing that you're having to work through and deal with yeah. that, you know, like you said, kids or even a lot of people just haven't had to do until you really tried to build something on your own. You don't right. know what that is.
1: And and like it's it's a little bit hard to wrap your your mind around. But the, the idea like the money he's holding in his hand he wants to use to um, go on his honeymoon and he's giving all of that money away. And again, I think when I first saw this movie when I was younger and stuff like it just felt like a plot device. It, it felt like, oh, he's losing the money again. What a bummer. But like having been a person that has like actively been trying to save money. for things, Right. <laughs> and then, you know, and then, you know, those those life things happen and how bloody disappointing that is to do the right thing with your money and then like you've lost the thing you really were they, like it's years of your life sometimes that takes to build savings to go on a trip like that like it's it hits different when you're an adult man I think like I'm gonna keep saying this to this, this whole whole podcast is that this movie if you watch this movie when you were 15 and said this movie is dumb watch this movie in your 30s because <laughs> it hits different as the children say
0: Well, and it's a powerful movie to watch every year or every couple of years and really, like, take stock of your life. Yeah. And to be reminded, like, I've seen this movie, maybe not more than any other movie, but I I just return to it almost like scripture. Like, there is something deeply spiritual to this movie. Yes. About this movie to me because, and I was thinking this as well, I was like, could you possibly make anything like this in 2023, 2024? And I'm like, no, I don't think you could. Um, Not something this sincere. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think there's two
1: things about this movie that make it hard to made in in 2024. This is this is diving pretty, pretty far into my like meaning of the movie content.
0: That's right. Um, But
1: the name of the podcast, we can do it. I'm going to add a fifth rule to my movie rules, which I think this movie helps this movie along. And that is that like the the true orientation and meaning of Christmas, right? Like the origin of Christmas is like it's a holiday about faith and like, you know, Jesus being born and a savior coming. Right. That's the origin of the whole holiday and right. everything. And uh, so much of the traditions sort of emanate from that, from generosity and taking care of the poor and that kind of stuff. Um, and so I think there is a um, there is a theme of if a if a movie has sort of uh, themes of like faith within it um that also sort of amps up its christmas attude. um and i think that this movie um has a lot and i i think i'm going to dive into this more l- later as 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 we keep keep talking but this movie has so much on its mind when it comes to faith and not just necessarily faith in god but faith in each other yeah um and sort of the the um Sort of a spiritually motivated, optimistic view of humanity, somewhat contrary to the view of humanity we talked about last week in *Killers of the Flower Moon*. Yep. <laughs> um. And I, I think this this movie is so optimistic about people's souls. Um. Uh. And and it does so on in a very sort of on the head spiritual way. The first five minutes of the movie are two stars representing God, Joseph, and an angel talking to each other um, that are just blinking. Um, I don't think you could do that nowadays and not sort of be laughed at. I think people are a little bit more jaded about that kind of
0: um, uh, thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's why I think, again, jaded is the word. We've talked about that a bunch, but like this movie is sincere in a way that just works that's so powerful and authentic and we're maybe too meta or too self-aware to like either it comes across as cheesy or forced or preachy but this movie doesn't have anything and honestly before we're talking to the stars why do we go up to the stars because everyone's praying Everyone is praying for George Bailey's. Soul. Yes. And that's literally how the movies of, are.
1: The first lines of the movie is like five different households. You don't even see their faces. You just see pictures of houses praying for George Bailey, which is an incredibly sincere thing um, that is is not treated. I mean, it becomes a little cartoony when the stars are blinking and talking to one another. But it's it's not it's not p- parody. It's 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 like. It takes this very sincere moment and then turns it into a lighthearted moment that then brings us in, into the rest of the movie. Um, yeah, I think it, it takes this idea of faith and it, George. think something that I think is interesting when talking about faith is that George Bailey at the end when he is um, at the bar praying, he says, like, I'm not a praying man, but God, if you exist, I need help right now. So. Yeah. It, which is which is interesting in like forty five. Right. A very um, sort of um, Christian culture in America, um, you know, that is around the time when one nation under God went on our currency and stuff like, right. you know, it, it it wasn't a subculture to have uh, Christianity, to have your protagonist sort of not be a front facing um, God fearing person, yet having the background plot of this whole thing being somewhat spiritual. Um that 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 to me gave the movie a little bit more more weight in
0: itself that struck me in that moment too where it's like okay I don't believe in God, but I need to believe in something right now because I'm nothing yeah. left Yeah I, I think this movie is so historic There's a few facts that I was just researching that I wanted to like talk about before we got really into the categories yeah. Yeah. um first of all fact number one Frank Capra Donna Reed and Jimmy Stewart have all called it's a wonderful life their favorite movie um and you may only know these people from It's a Wonderful Life, but they did a lot of. Jimmy Stewart, especially, did so many, yes. such a long career. We'll talk about him in a moment. Don Reed, as well, has been in so many things. Frank Capra, like, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He made many, many other influential movies, but they all called it their favorite. It's a Wonderful Life bombed at the box office. Totally it did. was a total disaster at the box yep. office. We talk about like cult movies like one of them i always think of a shawshank redemption where it's like that nobody saw the shawshank redemption in the theater it did not happen (laughs) all of a sudden on dvd two years later everyone was watching it and talking about it but nobody saw that in the theater and it's a Wonderful life is the same way uh fact my next fact is so with with, with that though with that the um, amount of this movie bombed
1: um, you know, just a little bit internet research that R- R- Rob and I both apparently did before jumping on this on this podcast. It didn't really start to take hold until it slipped into public domain, correct? In like th- in like the seventies and nineteen seventy four. Yes, until it started being played on, like basically for free on TV, um, as like a Christmas rotation as like a cuz it was cheap because it was in 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 the public domain. So it didn't like hit a couple years later. I remember you know back in the 40s there was no home video. Um, the only time that you could see reruns of anything was if they'd put it back in the theaters. Right. Um so th- that is interesting to me that this movie sort of bombed in the 40s and then had a resurgence like 30 years later. Yeah, <laughs> literally it's 30 a classic.
0: 30 years later so this movie's made 1946. It's 1974 where all of a sudden copyright lapses, and it's just like, they're like, hey, let's just slap this on TV all the time every Christmas. And it, that copyright lapsed for 20 years. And so, 20 years, it was just playing over and over again every holiday on marathons, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it just became like part of the culture. The two movies that I know where this happened most prominently are This and Night of the Living Dead. That also happened where the copyright slipped somehow, and then they, every Halloween, they just started slapping. Nine of the living dead anywhere. And it's the best thing that ever happened to both movies. Yeah. Like it made them massive successes and just in the DNA and ethos of the culture. That's super cool. So you you brought up. Uh, do, do you have any more any more facts, by the way? Uh, a couple random ones. It's a wonderful life's gym floor turned swimming pool was real. Yeah.
1: Yes. Uh, it's, it's at like the Beverly Hills High School or something in California. It's still it still exists today. It's one of like two locations in the movie that still exists.
0: I just looked that up because I was like, it struck me as so weird watching the movie where like, hey, there's a swimming pool in the gym floor. I'm like, is that a real thing? Like, who thought of that? But it turns out it actually was real and was not a set piece. They built Bedford Falls. Like, Bedford Falls is a movie set that was built, one of the biggest ones ever. But this one was just really there in Beverly Hills High School. Yeah, it's
1: super random. Because like, uh, apparently, I was thinking about the technology it would take, you know, uh. 80 years ago, to build something like that. And it seems pretty significant. Of course, they were building like warships. So, you know, they could build a moving gym floor. But, um, like, they they say in the movie that it was cheaper to put the like gym floor on top of the swimming pool than to build like two different buildings. (laughs) And so it was actually a money saver to have a like gigantic moving pocket floor. All right. It's wild. Isn't that
0: crazy? Yeah. Uh, My my final fact is uh, just it's a wonderful life's legacy was surprising. Even to Frank Capra. He says the film is life of its own now. And I can look at it. Like no- I had nothing to do with it. I'm like a parent whose kid grows up to be president. I'm proud, but it's the kid who did the work. I didn't even think of it as a Christmas story when I first ran across it. Um, Just an incredible quote, kind of like this is yeah. this movie he made. It failed. And then it was powerful enough. And the, Uh, copyright collapsed and then it just kind of became something it like endured and i just think there's this thing of like no artist is appreciated in their own time and even the novels moby dick was a totally failed novel that then kind of became something there's so many pieces of art that just transcend their time and just all of a sudden become something and i just think that's always fascinating and this is another more modern example of that happening
1: yeah that's that's really really true What do you think of Jimmy Stewart? This is a full Jimmy Stewart movie. Um, Like he is. He is obviously the center of of this thing. Um, Where does he rank? I'm going to ask a Rob question here. Where does he rank in like your actors?
0: So I did a bunch of research by research. I mean, scoured the Internet for 10 minutes about like actor lists of like the greatest of all time. And he's rarely on those lists. He he, If he is, he kind of ranks at like number 20 or 25, that sort of thing. Okay. You get Laurence Olivier, you get Marlon Brando, you get De Niro, you get, you know, those types. Yeah. But to me, I don't know what to say about him as an actor. But what I'll say about him is he is a movie star. He yes. is one of those guys. I would put him and Harrison Ford in the same sort of vein where mm. they just have this sort of like... Magic, this charisma that makes this movie work. And the same way Indiana Jones, I just don't think would work without Harrison Ford. Yeah. It's a wonderful life as it's It's a brilliant script. The directing is beautiful. There's so many things. But from that first shot, he has this like frenetic energy that I think is so electric. And then he ends up going and becoming a star of Hitchcock movies, of Harvey. He has like an awesome, awesome career. Harvey, and every time he's on movie. screen, He's just electric to me. I mean, he's like, again, a true movie star. Absolutely.
1: Um, So I think I would probably put Jimmy Stewart in like maybe my top 10 list. Um, I lived in Los Angeles for a hot second, about three years. And when we first moved there during the pandemic, uh, Hannah and I, um, my wife, um, we uh, it was during the pandemic, so you couldn't go anywhere. But we would like, all right, let's go around and like see the houses of old famous people. Cause mm. they're like, there's like websites where you can look that stuff up. So, cause it was like, go on a walk or go drive somewhere. Cause it's a pandemic, right? So he was like the only person I could think of of old movie stars who to houses I wanted to see was Jimmy Stewart. Cause wow. he was just like, he's like the guy from like old Hollywood that I think I am connected to. I think it's interesting that you compare him to Harrison Ford. To me, he is like the 1940s, 1950s Tom Hanks. Yeah, he is. He is like the perfect everyman that isn't like schlubby, but isn't like super cool. He's like just your like regular Joe. He's your dad. He's got a lot of energy. He's got a lot of magnetism, but he's just a regular guy Um on the Wikipedia article about um uh, it's Wonderful Life. Uh, Frank Frank Capra is quoted as saying that like he, it's the hardest thing is to find someone who can play what he calls like a good Sam, right? It's just a person who's just good, right? That 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 they're not like a scoundrel or a rogue or weird or quirky. They're just a good guy, and he he said that uh, Jimmy Stewart was the only actor of his time that he could think who
0: could play that convincingly. I think Tom Hanks is is another guy who I definitely thought of. Along that same sort of line, where it's just like, this is a regular guy. Like, I, he's an avatar, right? Like, I see myself yeah. in Tom Hanks. He's a normal guy. He's, you know, fine looking, but not like movie star gorgeous or whatever else. Jimmy right. Stewart's the same way. The reason that I compare him to Harrison Ford is like, he just walks on the screen and just fills it with electricity and energy. Right. And that sort of energy, Tom Hanks does some, but man, The energy that he has when he's broken on the bridge or even when he's like flirting with Mary, you want the moon? All Like he just has this like boyish enthusiasm that really, really plays and powers this whole film. It's yeah, it's it's
1: completely true. I also think there's something about his voice that is so odd. Yes. And yet it's iconic, right? Like people are still occasionally you'll hear like late night hosts doing like Jimmy Stewart impressions. Uh, it's not very topical or uh, up to date, but like he has a very iconic voice. It almost reminds me of like an Owen Wilson situation. Oh, that's it's, like, interesting. Right. Like it's 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 a mimicable, interesting kind of strange voice, but he's still a very relatable everyman. Um, he, he's just like he's this iconic guy in the middle, whereas like you think of like De Niro's or Brando's that they they have this cool guy factor that Jimmy Stewart honestly doesn't have like he's not cool nope. in the same way that he, but he is electric right like he is there is magnetism there while it it isn't like cool guy magnetism which is wild like that th- that's a very hard line to find and i think it's just something that he probably just exuded as a human being
0: well and when i was watching the movie last night i was like it's amazing that this is the same guy who's in Rear Window so like tom hanks doesn't really have a rear window type of performance in his bag and so i think he's kind of under because rear window is a broken kind of creepy character that he plays and so i think this this sincere sweetness to the darkness of movies like vertigo and rear window which are stone-cold masterpieces as well for him to be you know maybe hitchcock's greatest actor and capra's biggest actor it's like very few other guys can you know hit that level for these all-time directors Uh, The ghost of Cary Grant
1: is coming for you right now for saying that Jimmy Stewart is Hitchcock's favorite actor.
0: Well, I know (laughs) I'm probably in trouble for (laughs) saying that.
1: Just just
0: saying. But but I would argue with Cary Grant and Alfred Hitchcock that like the best like Vertigo and Rear Window are probably I think his two best films or in his top two or three. And so Rear Window is probably my favorite Hitchcock film, and it's because
1: of Jimmy Stewart's performance.
0: Right.
1: Um, I think Vertigo just to stay on the Jimmy Stewart train for another eight seconds. I think Vertigo pushes the like dark factor too far on Jimmy Stewart. I think it takes him too far out of his like um, every man uh, that I, I struggle a little bit, I think, with believing him in that movie.
0: But mm, it is it is a it is a masterpiece. I do, know what, I do know what you're saying, um, but there's so much creativity and otherworldliness there that, like, makes it work, but this is not a Vertigo the, podcast. This is so. not a
1: Vertigo podcast. <laughs> let's this get, is let's, a podcast
0: about It's a Wonderful Life. Let's get into the categories. All right, Who is the most it. meaningful character in It's a
1: Wonderful Life, Andrew? All right. The most meaningful character in this movie is obviously George Bailey, but I'm not going to talk about George Bailey because I just spent 10 minutes talking about Jimmy Stewart. I want to talk about Mr. Potter. Mm-hmm. Because I think the fact that Mr. Potter is not the central focus of this Christmas story is interesting and what makes this movie significant. So as I was watching this movie this time around, I thought about this and I've often heard this movie compared to A Christmas Carol, right? It's this idea of a yes. ghost or an angel shows up and shows you what your life could have been, right? Which is honestly how I often hear this movie talked about, but it's only like the third act. It's like the last 30 minutes of a two hour plus movie. But the interesting thing I think about It's Wonderful Life is that it's pitting the archetypes of like Bob Cratchit against Ebenezer Scrooge. And in A Christmas Carol, Scrooge is the main character and you get to watch him be sort of redeemed And sitting there watching the movie, you're like, yeah, this guy sucks. He needs to get better. I think Mr. Potter is that Scrooge archetype and you get to watch um, George Bailey, the like Bob Cratchit analog struggle with what it takes to be a decent human being in the shadow of an Ebenezer Scrooge. You don't get that in A Christmas Carol. Bob Cratchit is just a good, decent guy who's living here on the side who Scrooge is taking advantage of. And then ultimately Scrooge decides to stop taking advantage of him. Um, But like we have to watch a much more realistic of like a Scroogey businessman that is not going to have a change of heart um, and what his impact is on a person and how someone maintains being a decent human being. And what that human decency looks like in the wake of a Mr. Potter. I think it's a really interesting twist on the Christmas story that makes it much more engaging because I think we all relate to Bob Cratchit far more than we relate to Scrooge. And so we relate to George Bailey far more than we relate to Mr. Potter. Um, Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. Positioning George as Bob Cratchit. I've never thought of it like Potter is definitely some sort of Scrooge archetype, and this movie has Dickens on its mind with sort of an angel who's going to visit you and show you something different. Which, going back to your main point about faith, there is something about, like, angels coming into people's, like, this is, if you read Matthew and Luke, like, that, those gospels are about angels visiting (laughs) Joseph and Mary... And Wiseman and Shepherds and Zachariah, like all these different, you know, Bible characters (laughs) get visited by angels to upend their whole lives. And um, that is what a OG Christmas story is. And so this movie had not only Scrooge on its mind, but uh, scripture in those same sort of ways. Um, But that is really interesting that Potter is that sort of character. I, I think for me, I mean, obviously George Bailey is the most meaningful character but the other foil that I think is really, really important is Mary. Mm-hmm. And she is just this person from the word go. He's like there. He has this super romantic scene with her. She's in a bathrobe. They've just had the best night of their life. And he's like, what are you going to do with your life? And he's like, oh, I'm going to go see the world. And he like makes a wish. And then she makes a wish. And we don't know what it is. But like this time watching it, I'm like, oh, she's wishing for him to stay home. Yeah. And we realize that she is the grounded home she is the grounded beauty and truth in his life and he cannot see it she is the best thing in the world to him and he just is not opening up his eyes what's right in front of him he even marries her yes because he loves her but it is kind of a default of like okay well whatever i couldn't go so i'll get married i'll do the responsible thing and he does not realize what a treasure she is until the very end and when he sees her and they embrace and he hugs her And then when all the people are giving money, you see the look on her face. And it's like, oh, she is the grounded truth of like what this guy had in his life that he was missing, that he was too blind to see. So here's the interesting thing, I think, about that scene where he ends up falling in love
1: with her. It is a to me, it is a very complicated scene, not the not the lasso the moon and pull it down for you scene. That's just adorable and classic, but still really good scene. Like, I remember that scenes often made fun of. And I'm like, this is actually really Great it's paint.
0: gold, dude. It's so
1: good. Yeah, it's so good. But the scene where he goes over to her house, it is to me, it is maybe one of the most complicated, like internal scenes. And I really related to it as like a person of like he actually does have feelings for her. Right. When his mom says like she's back in town, he's like, oh, And so he goes and just stands outside her house because he doesn't know what he wants to do. He knows that her grounding him is going to keep him from the other thing he wants to do. And so he goes into the house and is just really mad at her. Yeah. (laughs) Because because he's actively warring inside his brain with like, I like this girl. She clearly likes me. I want to stay with her here, but I absolutely do not want to do that. And he's mad at kind of her for existing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I thought that was so, like, real. And ultimately, he just has to give into it. He, like, is too drawn to her. They have this scene where he's literally arguing on the phone with the guy that is also trying to court her, who's trying to sell him shares in a new company. Um, And it's just because they're standing so close together at the phone that the dialogue of the script is, like, them talking on the phone to a guy about buying shares in a plastic company. But what's happening on screen is the two of them, like undeniably realizing how attracted they are to one another. And it's this amazing scene. And so to me, he's not settling in the way of like, I guess I will. It's, it's, it's him sacrificing. It's him saying, I have to do this. Right. right? And I'm giving up all of this to do it. And I also hate that, but I have to do this because Like this part of my heart is so drawn to it, which to me was like so much more elevated than what I remember this movie being and way more elevated than 15 year old me or 22 year old me honestly would be able to understand.
0: Dude. So one of the things that I thought about watching this movie is there's this book called the nutshell technique about that's a screenwriting book. And they say you have to give a character their want. And then in the crisis, you give them the opposite of what they wanted. So, His want was to escape the life that he had. Like, that's really his want in the very beginning of the movie, is he wants to escape, he wants to be an explorer. And then ultimately what he's given is what he wants, but now he doesn't want it anymore. So he's given this chance to escape the life that he has, and he realizes, like, oh, shoot, I had all this wonderful stuff, and I didn't see it right in front of me. And that's the real tension in front of him, is he, again, he just feels like, Ah, my dad, okay, I should help him. Okay, marry this girl. I should marry her. And he just, like, knows he should do these things because... Do you
1: think he marries her because he should? No. I think that's the one decision he makes because he truly, like, wants to. I think everything he does at the building and loan is out of obligation. I think he stays with it and lets Harry go out of obligation to be a decent person. Marrying Mary really feels to me as though a competing affection is at work.
0: Correct. When I say should, it's mean I should marry her because I'm madly in love with her. She's perfect. I'm never going to find someone else like her. But if I marry her, that shuts the door on where I ultimately want to go and who I ultimately want to be. And these are the type of grown-up decisions that you really have to make that he's dealing with.
1: And and I, th- I think it's so interesting because every time he has to make one of those decisions, it is a truly good thing that he is able to do, right? Like when Mary says that she's pregnant and is going to have a kid, you see in his face that he's actually bummed about it because it's going to keep him. It's In the scene before, they've 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 talked about how far his money stretches and if he has kids, how much less it'll stretch and how he won't be able to save and he won't be able to go do the things he wants to do. And so she says that she's pregnant and you see like... Before he gets excited about it, he has to give up this thing. And so it's this whole movie of him giving up on things that he that aren't like bad things. They're not greedy things.
0: They're they're just
1: dreams, right? Like seeing the world and wanting to build big, important things is not like a bad dream.
0: No, it's it's going from childhood dreams to adult realities. You know, like that's what this movie is. It's important that it starts with him as a child. And so it's like, hey, you have these dreams of what you want to do when you're a kid, of the way you think your life is going to turn out, and it never turns out this way. But yeah. the truth is, you were given a wonderful life if you open your eyes and see it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the meaning of the movie, like, straight up. Yeah. Uh, okay, do you have a most meaningful scene?
1: Um. Let's see. I mean, the most meaningful scene... Um, I think, yeah, this is so I think the most meaningful scene, I'll go with the last scene of the movie where everyone comes over and gives him money, Um, because to me, that scene is the one that really, like, truly paints the picture about faith yeah. that I think this movie is talking about Um, earlier in the movie when there's the run on the bank and everyone comes to him and they're going to sell their shares for 50 cents on the dollar to Potter and that's going to wipe out the building load. <laughs> Very, very grown up math conflict. For sure. (laughs) And he's giving away his honeymoon money in order to keep these people liquid. He doesn't make them sign any paperwork. He says, this is a loan and I know you're good for it. It underlines this idea that with the exception of Mr. Potter, George Bailey truly has faith in other people. He believes that other people are essentially good. And he demonstrates that throughout the whole movie. At the end, when they're all bringing him money, right, all they say, and they're very specific about it, is um, Uncle Billy, who needs help and should not be the CFO of this company.
0: No, there's one lesson. (laughs) in Get Uncle (laughs) Billy away from any money. (laughs) That (laughs) That is your critical mistake. (laughs) Sweet man should not
1: be handling the money. Uh, he, He says that Mary went out and said, George Bailey needs help. Does not say why. And with no questions asked, people gave them money. And that is, it's this whole scene of people having unrestricted faith in George, right? In his decency as a human being, no one is explained to what happened. No one knows that he needs $8,000 because this is gonna happen, Potter's gonna do whatever and yada, 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 and he's gonna pay it back. Um, this is what happened and it wasn't his fault and it's not gonna happen, or there is no explanation to anyone, and they all show up and say, you had faith in me, I'm going to have faith in you. And, and that's it. It's completely clean, right? which, which is maybe a little, like, idealistic, but to me is is what makes it so rich, is it's it's not just generosity, it's true faith in, like, the soul of another human being doing what's right with your generosity.
0: So part of me wants to say the least meaningful scene in this movie is, like, the whole middle, which just kind of drags. There's so many things. There's so many scenes that's going back and forth that's going on in it. It's actually a pretty complicated story. It literally is a wonderful life. It's 20 years of his life that he's putting together. But the reason I'm not going to say that is because you see little investment after investment that he's making in all sorts of different people in ways big and small. And that ending scene If you haven't, like everyone's seen that ending scene, even if you're listening to this podcast somehow and you've never seen this movie, that scene has been parodied, has been shown clips a million times of like, to my brother, the richest man in town, and everyone's cheering and giving him money. You know what that scene is. What you don't know if you have not watched this whole movie carefully is each person that comes in is someone who George has listened to, has talked to, has helped in a significant way. So it's like a lifetime of sewing ultimately leads to him reaping, you know, these sort of benefits and this sort of way, which is like he is invested, invested in people, and in his darkest moment, finally people come and bail him out. But it doesn't yeah. just ha- it wouldn't happen to just anyone. It happened to him because of who he was. And that's why that scene is so powerful and makes sense in that way.
1: Yeah. The word like human decency is what kept circling in, in my mind. And something that I didn't quite latch onto before I think in that scene is that like I think the the mediocre stakes of that is that, like, if George doesn't get the money, he's going to, like, lose the building and loan and be bankrupt and be on the street. Right. That feels like the stakes. Yeah. The bigger stakes is the fact that, like, he's actually about to be arrested for embezzlement. Right. (laughs) There is there is a D.A. standing in his living room with an arrest warrant because he can't find eight thousand dollars of other people's money, which I did do the inflation math on that one. In 1945, that would have been $115,000. Wait, say that number one more time. $115,000. So Uncle Billy walked into the bank with $115,000 and lost it in a newspaper. It's so much money. And so he's about to be arrested for basically embezzling from the people of, of of the town. And they are not bailing him out of just his financial poverty, they're bailing him out of what could potentially be a gigantic financial crime against them. It's the people of the building and loan that he has quote-unquote stolen from, and they do not ask for any explanation. They just say, we trust you, we have faith in you. And to me, that is such a, like, higher level of, like, what I want to be as a person. When you, when you talk about, like, looking at yourself, to me, that's what made that scene so rich and so phenomenal was th- that, like, these people truly believe in one another because of how, again, like use it, how he sowed in them, right? How he invested in them, trusted them, believed that they were decent people, that they can't believe that he would embezzle money from them and are going to just come and bail him out. No questions asked.
0: And what's also so amazing about that scene is he's ready to be arrested. He's like, hey, yeah. I'm going to be arrested before I do. Let me get, give Zuzu who flower puddles back and give her a hug. You know, he that's all he's yeah. thinking about is he's like. I just want to hug my kids and then you can haul me away to jail. Like, and he's resigned to it and he's so grateful because he's like, anything is better than that. Um, I'll give my most meaningful scene now. And it, I mean, it's been so parodied and whatever else, but this idea of like, what would the world be like if you were never born? Sure. Um, it's more powerful than the, to me, even of the ghost of Christmas past and present and future. Those are things of like, Hey, let me kind of show you your life. This is like, okay, what impact did your life have? Mm -hmm. And he's kind of being taken on a tour of all these people who he impacted. And we talked about a little bit about the meaning of life in the last episode, The Killers of the Flower Moon, weirdly enough. And I was thinking about the meaning of life again in this episode where he's realizing like, oh, if I was never born, it's not just about me. Mr. Gower would have been affected. Martini's place would have been affected. There's so many things in town which would be so much worse because of his presence. And so he realized, like, oh, these things that I've been doing on, not only are people giving me money as a thank you, but if I wasn't here, the world would be a darker place. And he just wants to end because he's like, the world would be better without me, but he's just thinking selfishly and darkly about himself versus, like, what impact would that have on so many other people? And as he goes on this tour, dude, the last... 30, 40 minutes this movie is unassailable. It is so perfect. I think so many movies kind of fizzle out and the third act falls apart. And this movie is just electric as he goes through that thing. And the moment that really hit me this time is he goes through, he hits all these different things, he realizes like what his life means, and then he's broken at the bridge and he prays one more time. And he says, I want to live again. I want to live again. I want to live again. And on that third time saying it i believe all of a sudden there's no snow and then boom snow starts falling again and i never noticed that before so it was like god or something in the heaven made the snow start falling and then in a moment later bert shows up and recognizes him and all that sort of thing but it's like it's so powerful like go watch that moment bro it's like the music drops out and then all of a sudden you almost hear that snow fall and it's like okay there's life for him again and It just hit me as so powerful.
1: Yeah, it's it's beautiful is what it is, right? Like we have so often talked about meaningful movies on this on this podcast as being movies that are sincere and could be spoken of as cheesy. But like when they're sincere and it works and it's like so beautiful and it's just everyone on screen and behind screen believed in that moment and just leaned into it. And it was just a wonderful moment. And you feel all of the feelings that you want to. So you you did say, though, that the last 30 minutes of the movie was unassailable. Do you have a least meaningful scene in this movie?
0: I don't know. I do think there's just a lot of back and forth. Like I did. I did part like mostly for my kids. They rewatch it or other people. I'm like, there is just a lot of like development of like, okay, now he's buying a house and like making the house. It's like we're taking you on every beat of what it means to build a life. I don't want to touch anything. I think this movie is so good. Yeah, But I do think there's just a lot of like exposition of him building a life.
1: So to me, that is one of the things about this movie that makes it more of an adult movie is that it's not about the plot. If you try to describe this movie by the third act, the first act and second act are super boring because you're just waiting to get to the angel moment. But I think that this movie really is about watching someone's life unfold and watching the victories and the disappointments and how every victory is paired with a crushing disappointment and the sacrifice and the beauty in his life. If you get away from this movie being all about the third act and about watching someone's like character develop throughout their life, it's pretty cool. All the scenes, they play out so slowly and there's so much extra dialogue that like doesn't matter. It's just real life people talking. Most like script doctors nowadays would be like, oh, this is dragging too much. There's not enough momentum. You got to cut, 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 cut. You know, you got to keep this thing rolling. And I like I was I was, I was talking about that scene where he is uh, trying to court Mary for the second time and comes in and is just angry. It's actually a really long scene and it plays out in a, I'm not going to say a full Tarantino way because Tarantino would do it a lot longer with a lot more pop culture references. But it's that kind of thing where it's just this scene of two people trying to sort one another out that gets you to this beautiful, realistic moment at the end of them getting together that might not be as engaging if you're wanting to put on something like Elf.
0: (laughs) You know, there's one of the scene I want to talk about quickly. And I I think when you're talking about this movie kind of builds in that sort of sense, uh, it is really earned. I think that's what makes the ending work so well is because... You do build some really good groundwork. And another important piece of groundwork that is not watched as much or thought about as much is when he gets home and realizes, like, the $8,000 gone, he's lost everything, and he just blows up at his family. Mm -hmm. He yells at Zuzu. He tells his daughter, Can you stop playing the piano? He snaps at his wife. He snaps at the substitute teacher, and he just starts like kicking and punching things over. And I have to admit, in my darkest moments, like, I've had a moment or two like that with my family where I'm just so frustrated about things that are going on in my life and i just snap and i lose my temper and i try to never let it happen but i saw that and i was just like "Ugh, i know that man who did that yeah. like i know that that part of me and so that's the fact is like that's the last time that he saw his family was like i just snapped at them and they saw the worst darkest part of me and yeah. that's what he's left with thinking about as he's standing on the bridge
1: and even the writing of that scene, I was so impressed with the like arc of what he's doing. Oftentimes I think of older movies like not being written well. And that's just not true at yep. all. <laughs> like sometimes the dialogue might be more of its time. So it sounds stilted. But like the character development of that scene, a lesser version of that scene is he would have come home, snapped, yelled at everybody and stormed out. And that's not what he does. He tries to hold it together. Yes. Um, And he. After snapping at, I think, his son, he goes up and has a very sweet scene with his daughter and the rose petals and is able to calm himself down. He pulls the thing off the railing, wants to throw it, and then doesn't, right? Like, you see him battling himself the whole time. He has ups and downs, and at the end, he apologizes, right? He says, I shouldn't have snapped at you. Please go back to playing your piano. And then she doesn't, and she's crying. and can't handle it, and then he yells at her again. It's this beautiful up and down of of a real person. Dude, that's so good a real person in that situation, not just an angry alcoholic father. That is a one note thing. It's like five notes playing all at once in, in, in that character. And I'm like, this is so well written, man. This is great.
0: Well, <laughs> and, and I have four kids just like George Bailey. And I just resonated with it so much. Cause it's like, okay, I have to deal with this, with this kid. I have to deal with this. My wife has another, th- it's like so many things at home that are pulling at you mm-hmm. when right. you just have nothing left. Like he enters right. that house where he's like, I'm like, and he really feels like a failure. I think that's what's so chilling about this is like, he's like, I can't protect and I can't help these people that I love the most. Mm. And he just feels like a complete failure. Did you have a least meaningful scene, Andrew? I do. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, it, it is, it is during the, like, if
1: I wasn't alive section. Um, and as they're going through and they're showing kind of like worst case scenario of if he wasn't alive and the, a li- some of it is a little bit like too far like if he wasn't alive potter bought the town and turned all of main street into like strip clubs it's like that seems a little far
0: which is a total <laughs> shout out to back to the future 2 there's so many movies that are influenced by this and it's just like that's a straight <laughs> back to the future 2 rip off
1: except back to the, tube, uh, back to the future 2 ripped off it's a wonderful life because yeah, it I love came it.
0: 60 years <laughs> later let's be clear that's what i mean back, back to the future 2 ri- is ripping it off <laughs>
1: Um, but so, so some of that stuff seems a little a little elevated, but like the idea of like he saved the, the drugstore guy from accidentally poisoning somebody and then he would have gone to jail. Like there are things that like really play out in this way. People d- don't have homes, all, all, all this kind of stuff. You see how he affected their lives. But then when it goes to and he wants to see Mary and the worst case scenario for Mary is that because she didn't find a man, she became like a frumpy, bespectacled librarian. And it's supposed to play as this like, oh, no, her life is ruined. This like independent woman who never found a husband who has a career as a librarian. Like it's supposed to feel like awful. And to me, it came across as being a little bit like she might actually be loving her life, man. Like. Like just just because she didn't get married, so now she wears oversized clothes and glasses. Now, like it felt a little bit like an eighties like take off your glasses, girl, and you'll be beautiful. Um, it was it was a little bit too far for me. <laughs> it's was funny. Like, this I didn't is silly. I, I didn't think <laughs> about
0: her wardrobe, but I definitely thought like, oh, she's now been damned to the library. Like that's the worst.
1: <laughs> you know, like yeah. she's
0: Mike Hanlon from It. It's just like, oh, you're a librarian alone. Like that's, and I'm like. Donna Reed is a smoke show. She is, like, so beautiful. Like, she's not, right. like, if she if she wants to be a single librarian, more power to her. But right. she is not going to be trapped in that life,
1: for sure. Right. Well, like, one, that, like, she couldn't find, possibly find another husband because George Bailey wasn't around. And then, two, that, like, her life was miserable as, like, a single woman who's a librarian. Like, the, the whole thing just felt like uh, this is, it, it felt a little bit of its time and uh, that there wasn't a woman in the writer's room uh when i was watching that scene
0: that's a great call out can i defend the the town turning into like nothing but strip clubs and just because george is not there sure so i think part of what this movie is saying is like okay potter is there who's going to like like take over this town he's going to become the most powerful person like he's essentially going to have a monopoly in this town without the bailey building and loan and so the bailey building and loan is what's keeping you know, ordinary businesses, ordinary people employed. It's what's kind of keeping this sort of town respectable. In some ways, that's totally ridiculous. In other <laughs> ways, it's, if you look at this movie as a metaphor, it's like without good people in the world, evil does win. And so this hmm. is a movie that's calling out and saying, hey, we need good people in the world, people who are sacrificial, people who are looking out for the good of the community versus just the good of themselves. And that's what makes a community healthy and whole. And I think if George Bailey is a metaphor for that, that's that's the way that I watched it and see this movie is more of a metaphor of how things should be. It is a wish and a prayer in some ways. And in that way, I'm like, no, it, it works. It plays because it's like, it's true. If you let evil win, then yeah, then only the most corrupt parts of ourselves will take over our towns and our communities and that sort of stuff. Although it looked, it actually looked really fun. I was like, my hot take is probably like, pottersville looks a lot more where i'd want to go for vacation than bedford falls <laughs> but there's a lot going on in pottersville for yeah i'm just like man the nightlife is happening <laughs> yeah uh
1: bedford falls sort of everything everything closes up around like six thirty seven.
0: Yeah. i'm like they're mostly like, mostly bookstores there's like poker and cabaret and i don't even know what all's <laughs> happening there but it looks great yeah, you could like go to a nice jazz club,
1: get an old fashioned. Seriously, man, Puttersville's got options after nine o'clock.
0: Okay, uh, all right. Meaning of the movie? You wanna you wanna give your meaning of the movie? Oh, you're throwing it to me. Okay, I'll give my meaning of the movie. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. More than anything, is a Christmas movie, mm. and it's not just a Christmas movie in a way of like, oh, it's got Santa and elves and that sort of thing. It's Christmas in the way of like, this is the time of year where we slow down where we get away from our jobs and we ask ourselves, like, what are the most important, meaningful things? Mm -hmm. And I can't think of any other film that really makes you look at your life and take stock of your life than this movie. It does it much more so than a Christmas story or elf or polar express or anything else. This is a film that kind of goes all the way through and says, all right, what matters most? And it's a film that really shows the power of community. I love the scene with all the people there. And the the, Part where I've got misty eyed and really got emotional was when the whole town was there and you just see George Bailey look at himself and he's like, I didn't deserve this. I didn't I like like he's holding his daughter, he's holding Zuzu, and when they dump the basket of money, he literally like buries his face. He's like, I can't even look at these people because I'm not worthy of this sort of love and affection. And I think this is just that sort of salvation story, which is like Christmas is the time of year. Or you should stop thinking about what my life should have become, what I should have done, what I wish I had. And instead, it's like, okay, your life may be dark, it may be heavy, but there is stuff to be thankful for. There is beauty in your life, and this movie asks you to open your eyes and look at the beauty in your own life.
1: Uh, I love that. And see, this is why you throw to me on the meaning of the movie first is because then we can go out on awesome stuff like that. (laughs) Um, Because that's it. That's the closing note of this podcast. Um, So I'm going to give my meaning of the movie here in a second. But I encourage all of our listeners to go ahead and just cycle back to the listen to Rob's before you end this, because that really should be the closing note. Uh, I agree. I think that really is the idea that this is the Christmas movie that actually is grounded enough in real struggle to make you like think about the holiday season or feel joy in the things you're supposed to feel joy in during the holiday season in a way that less grounded movies like a like an elf or a Polar Express or the Santa Claus or anything like that. um, Sort of it's it's purposely less grounded. Um, I I, I love that there is a magic in how sort of um, both adult and uh, grounded the the themes of this movie are and the conflicts uh, that are w- within it.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I love those other movies. There's a powerful place. But if you've listened this long, you've probably watched this movie. But I would say be a it's a Wonderful Life evangelist. Like sit down, watch it with a friend, watch it with someone who's never seen it before. This movie is worth seeing because it has such a powerful message. It's almost like time traveling, bro. When I was watching it, I was like, maybe we can't, you know, there's wisdom in the past. There's wisdom in reading Shakespeare. There's wisdom in Mark Twain. There's re- wisdom yeah. in these sort of past great works of art. And It's a Wonderful Life It's that same sort of thing. So I'd strongly recommend that you check it out. And uh, appreciate you checking out this podcast. Good job today, Andrew. How do we do this Thanks, episode? Buddy. Oh, I think we did great. I think we did real, real solid. Yeah, I think we, you know, sometimes miss it. But this time we hit it. And so I'm proud of this episode. uh, And I thank you so much for listening. Remember, like, subscribe, review. We love those reviews. Keep them coming. And until then, we'll see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.
1: So sometimes the conversation on these podcasts continues after we stop recording at the end of these podcasts. Turns out I had a lot to say about the meaning of this movie. So here is a little extra Christmas tidbit for you all. Enjoy. So earlier in the podcast, you asked um, whether or not I thought this movie could be made in 2024. And I talked about sort of the sincerity of the faith element. But the other reason that I don't think we could make this movie in 2024 is something that I found incredibly sad while watching this movie. And that is that I think the picture of George Bailey in a movie that was made in 1947, George Bailey was the iconic American. He was the ideal American. He was the person that everyone wanted to be and would look up to. Um. We talk a lot about on this podcast about like America and some of our episodes we've talked about kind of like culture and cultural divides and the meaning of certain, you know, social things in our country. And I think one of the things right now is that our American hero, the idea of the American dream is now like Mr. Potter is the hero in American society. Now, Hmm. the guy, the guy who can find the best deal, the guy that can buy low and sell high the guy that can build wealth, that's what's held up as the ideal, not what George Bailey is espousing throughout this movie, which is like, just have a home and work together side by side with your neighbors. The takeaway of this movie of It's a Wonderful Life is somewhat empowering the idea of struggle and that struggle is not bad and that if we struggle together, that is good. And I think in 1945, that kind of struggle was seen as the American dream. And now I think the American dream is the idea of getting a bub struggle and having enough wealth that you don't have to worry about it. And I think there are a lot of Mr. Potters in our social sphere that we look up to um, as people who have figured out how to do that. Like Shark Tank, to say you know, the least, right? It's, it's these people that sit on a, on a board and, and, and like we're like, oh, these are the smart people. These are the rich people. Um, I I think there's something that feels old timey about this movie because of the value is it is espousing and that made me particularly sad because of how true I felt that ideal was and how far away I feel like I see us from that uh, sort of as a culture right now. So I don't think we could make this movie right now because of that. And I also loved that this movie was saying that and I wish more people
0: would watch it and think about it. Dude, that's so good. I I do think that's attention. I think the cynicism and what success looks like is just jaded in a way of like, yeah, it's cooler to be Mr. Potter than it is to be George Bailey. And we never quite say it like that, but yeah, this sort of sweetness, I don't know, we turn up our nose at it. Um, And I did too once upon a time. But I think once you've been broken enough and (laughs) beat up enough by life, you realize like, no, what George Bailey is fighting for and that community thing is like, I mean, we didn't even say the the main quote, which is like no man is a failure who has friends, you know, in that simple idea.
1: Yeah, which is which is yeah, what this is about is like the idea of struggling as a community. I I think the biggest thing for for me is, is that like the thing that the thing that Potter offers George at the end that almost trips him up and then he says no, is he he offers him a big enough salary to no longer have to struggle. Yeah. And I think right now I know in my life. That is an ideal that I have of if 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 I could just set myself up in such a way, if I could just make enough of the right choices that I didn't have to struggle anymore. Then I'll have it made right. And that's just not what this movie is saying. This movie is is like not reveling, but is like leaning into that. The struggle is what makes life wonderful in a way that it is the carrying your child on your hip and taking care of them. While you're dealing with an eight thousand dollar embezzlement charge and your neighbors are helping you that that is what makes life good, not the life that Mr. Potter has and i, I don't uh that's that's really kind of important, I think just to like to wrestle with and think about and then the fact that that's where this movie lands i I think is really like a. just I don't know man like it's it's it it elevated it to me in in, in a way that made me uh wish for a, like a nostalgic time that I didn't live in that I wasn't never even around for.
0: Yeah, I do also get nostalgic for that sort of like the idea of the community where you walk into the bar and the bar owner knows your name, you know, the drugstore person, there's just this idea of like community overall. And we're all connected in a way. And I, oh, I know George, I know his family. I know like, I know the high school teacher, like that closeness of community is central to this movie. And I think it's the other thing that's been dissipated. Yeah.
1: Merry Christmas, everyone.